text from two different passages from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and also Romans chapter 8. While you're turning there, remember Pastor Gary and his family are, are in travel today, so play for, not play, pray for their safe return. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. And then to the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 16 says, The Spirit itself beareth witness. Everybody say, bears witness. With our spirit that we are the children of God. I want to talk to you for a few minutes here this morning. Do a little teaching on, do you have the witness? Do you have the witness? Amen. First of all, let me lay some foundational work here today. The Holy Spirit is a witness. And it testifies of things. And it testifies of things to come. In the book of Revelation, it says the spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so, you know, the old saying is that prophecy both foretells and foretells. It tells you what has happened and it tells you what will happen. When the word of knowledge is at work, if somebody lays hands or they pray for you and the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom comes over them, that is the Spirit of God revealing to them things either that you're going through or have gone through. And that is to build your faith and enable you to receive the word that God is getting ready to put forth into you. So that is the spirit of prophecy. Now, the Bible says where the Lord or where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty and the Lord is that spirit. There is only one spirit. There's not three, there's not two, there's not half a dozen. There is one eternal spirit of God. Amen. And that is the spirit of the Lord. And where he is here, there is liberty and freedom and there is no fear. Praise God. But the Holy Spirit is a witness. The Holy Ghost was present, was a present, the present and abiding factor at creation. As evidenced from Genesis 1 and 2 where it says, And the earth was without form. And void or empty, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So the Spirit was there moving and creating and speaking and doing things. The Spirit of God was there testifying of all four of the major Old Testament uh, covenants. The first one being the covenant of Abraham, when God himself appeared to Abraham and said, Your descendants will be as the stars of heaven and as the sand by the seashore. There were multiple appearances that God made, even one where God appeared in the form of a theophany and appeared to him in the flesh, you know, speaking to Abraham face to face. It was the Spirit of God testifying and, and, and telling that that covenant would surely come to pass. Noah, whenever God made a covenant with Noah, the covenant of the rainbow, that I'm never going to again destroy the earth by water again. Uh, whenever God first began to, to make that covenant and to put that into motion. It was God that appeared to Noah and said, it's 120 years and I'm going to have it to rain upon the earth. And so I want you to build a boat. Noah built a boat. He was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. And all he was able to save were his family. Eight souls entered that boat, that ark, that boat. And when the time came, God himself the Spirit of God shut the door to that ark. There is going to come a day when God, the Spirit of God, is going to shut the door on mercy. 
And there will be no more mercy in that day. The door will be shut. The plan of salvation will be completed. And as the scripture says, let him that is holy, let him be holy still. And let him that is unclean, let him be unclean still. Moses, uh, whenever the spirit of God descended upon Mount Sinai in a black pillar of smoke and fire, that was the spirit of God testifying at the giving of the law or the Mosaic covenant, as we call it. The covenant of David, when God told David, you wanted to build me a house, but now I'm going to build you a house. And your descendants will sit upon the throne of David forever. And we know that Jesus is the son of David. How many know that he's on the throne today? Not in a future time, but he is currently on the throne reigning and ruling. I'm grateful for that. But God himself spoke to David and prophesied that his seed would sit on the throne forever. The Holy Ghost testified through prophets and sages, kings and priests, that Messiah would come to earth. The Holy Spirit breathed upon books that men wrote down while under the influence of the Spirit of God, and as such inspired it, and we call it our Bible or the Holy Scriptures. We know from the Scriptures that it's impossible for the Spirit of God to lie, and as such makes the perfect witness. In fact, Jesus called it the spirit of truth because it only testifies of truth. The Holy Ghost was what conceived and fathered in the womb of Mary, the Son of God. That fleshly body that God himself took on, the Bible says uh, in Luke 1 and 35, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So the Holy Ghost literally fathered that womb in, or that baby in the womb of Mary. The Holy Ghost testified at Jesus' baptism that he indeed was the Son of God. In Matthew 3 and 16 we read, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. There was the presence of the Holy Spirit that was the sign of the coming of the kingdom of God. Again, from Matthew 12 and 28, Jesus said, But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is, is come or is coming unto you. What he was saying was that when you see all these signs and wonders, when you see these things happen that's never happened before, when you see the lame begin to walk and the blind begin to see, when you see the dead begin to come up out of the grave, when you see all these great things happen, you are knowing that the Spirit of God is at work. And when the Spirit of God begins to work and move, you know that the kingdom of God is nigh unto you because the kingdom of God will be evidenced by or witnessed by the Holy Ghost. Amen. From Mark chapter 1 and verse 4, we read, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey and preached, saying, There comes one mightier than I after me, the latch of whose shoes I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. You see what John the Baptist was baptizing them was a baptism of repentance. In other words, 
it put them under the law again. It put the law in their hearts. They were, they were confessing their sins and confessing the fact that they had not kept the law of Moses. And when John baptized them, it confirmed the law of Moses in their minds and hearts and then pointed them back to the law of Moses to keep that. But John said, that's how I baptize. But there's going to come one mightier than I. In other words, there's a greater baptism. There's a mightier baptism than just, just a simple baptism of repentance. But there's going to come a Messiah, and he's going to baptize you in the Holy Ghost and with fire. And to this degree, the words of the prophets, but because he also preached that another baptism was coming. From Hebrews chapter 8, the Bible says, For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. You see, John baptized them unto the old covenant of the law of Moses. But the baptism that John prophesied about that was yet to come would put the law of God in their hearts through the Holy Ghost and enable them to walk in the Spirit of God. One was a baptism unto Moses, if you will. And the other was a baptism not unto a prophet, but into Jesus Christ. From John chapter 7, in verse 37, we read again, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now watch what he says. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So, that great day of the feast was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Sukkot. It's the third annual festival when the Jewish people gather in Jerusalem not only to remember God's provision in the wilderness and how they dwelt in tabernacles or tents, but also to look ahead to that promised messianic age when all nations would flow to Jerusalem to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so they would get together, and they still do, on the Feast of Sukkot, this particular festival of the year, and they build themselves tents or tabernacles, and they dwell in those tents or tabernacles for a certain amount of time, and that reminds them that, that, that we had a journey in the wilderness, and God kept us then, and he will keep us now. But there is, to the Jewish mind, there's thinking there is coming a messianic age when we're no longer going to be in the wilderness, but we're going to be in our land of Canaan, just as the children of Israel were looking forward to being in Canaan when they were in their wilderness. So to a Jewish mindset, the messianic age had not yet come, but they're looking forward to that time when the time would come and they would dwell in, and, and so they dwell in booths or tabernacles. So this is what that festival was. And so it looked back to their journey in the wilderness and looked forward to their promised Messiah. And as Jesus, their Messiah, stood there on that great day of the feast, he cried out for all to hear that the kingdom of God would come when the Holy Spirit was given.
And the Holy Spirit could not be given, according to this, words of Jesus, until Jesus was glorified, that is, taken up into heaven, and after he had rose from the dead and taken up into heaven. The Spirit of God could not be poured out until after Jesus was glorified and was resurrected from the dead. Again, from John 16 and 7, the scriptures say, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. He said, there is a comforter in the Greek that's paraclete. It just means that he's going to take us as his own children. It means that we are, we are like orphans. We didn't have a father. We didn't have any spiritual heritage. But the comforter comes and takes us in and makes us, gives us the spirit of adoption. So he said, there is going to come another Holy Spirit that is going to come. From Acts 1 and verse 4, Jesus said, and being assembled together with them, commanded them. Of course, this is after he's, he's, he's been resurrected and he's getting ready to ascend, that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which says he, you have heard of me. Now he reminds them of what John the Baptist said. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now, as I said, this is after Jesus had rose from the dead and they were commanded to stay in the city of Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit baptism. And then we get to Acts chapter 2, and we all know this story because we're Pentecostal, right? But I'm going to read it again because it's always good to read it. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. Now, I've laid a lot of foundation. We all know about the day of Pentecost. What you may not know is that the Feast of Pentecost is the same as the Jewish festival of Shavuot, also known as the Feast of Weeks. And it celebrates the barley harvest and, watch this now, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. It's called, also called the Feast of Weeks because Shavuot in the Greek, S-H, or sorry, Hebrew, S-H-A-V-U-O-T, they pronounce, yes, I actually looked that up on Google. Thank you, Brother Google. <laughs> Shavuot, I still may not be saying it right. Shavuot, because it comes, you know, the word Shavuot means weeks, so they also call it the Feast of Weeks. So throughout your Old Testament Bible, if you read from the King James Bible for other translations as well, you'll see it interchangeably called uh, it's never called Shavuot, but it's also called, it's always called the Feast of Weeks, but it's the same as the Feast of Pentecost. It's on the same day. Now, it comes seven days, or sorry, seven weeks and one day after the Passover. Now, the Jewish people in Egypt celebrated the Passover on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, which, which in the Jewish calendar is the first month, the first calendar month. God told Moses, the lawgiver, this month that you're going out of Egypt shall be unto you the first calendar month of your year. Because when you come into contact with the presence of God and he changes your life, it doesn't matter what's happened before. You got a brand new life. Your calendar year starts over with Jesus Christ. 
when you partake of that Passover. So the Jewish people celebrated the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. Precisely 50 days later, God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and to Israel to give them the law or the Ten Commandments. And that's where we get the Feast of Pentecost from. You see, the Passover uh, began, always began on the 14th day of Nisan. And the Bible says that, of course, our calendar, our, our days start from morning to morning. But to the Jewish mind, it starts at evening. And they take that from Genesis 1, where it says during creation that, you know, the, the evening and the morning were the first day, and the evening and the morning were the second day, etc., etc. So the Jewish mind, the evening and the morning. So to the Jewish mind, the day begins at evening. So God said, you know, whenever he laid down the, the specifications for the Passover in Exodus chapter 12 to Israel. He told Moses that I want you to have this feast in the evening. Because remember what's getting ready to happen in Egypt. There is going to be a death angel that is going to move all throughout the land of Egypt and look for the firstborn. And everywhere the blood of that Passover lamb was not on the doorpost, that death angel would come through that doors and take the firstborn. And that's how they went out of Egypt. Later on, you read when they were in the wilderness journey, God said, by the way, the firstborn belongs to me. You dedicate the firstborn to me. Therefore, the work of my service. You know what? I want to dedicate my whole life to the service of the king. Praise God. And so that Passover land, that Passover was a very high and a very holy day. And so Jesus, as you know, he had his last, he had the last supper with his disciples. He celebrated that Passover. It began on evening. And it was in that evening that he celebrated the Passover and he said, take ye, this is my, this is my blood, which I shed for the sins of many. And take ye, this is my body, which is broken for the sins of many. Perhaps, probably they had no idea what was really happening and what was getting ready to happen. But that very night, uh, they went out into the garden and, and Jesus prayed as it were great drops of blood. That was the garden of Gethsemane. You know that, you, you know that whole scene. And later on, you know, at least at, at some portion during the night, Judas Iscariot would come with soldiers and with weapons and would, would betray the Lord with a kiss. They would bring him out into Praetorium and Pilate would, would, you know, would, would go out and, you know, I guess he did his best to try and get him off the hook. But in the end, they said, let his blood be on us and on our children. And they crucified him the morning of the Passover at 9 a.m. And he hung on the cross until 3 o'clock. Now, what you may not know as well was that following the Passover was seven very special days to the Jews. And those days were called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this was actually incorporated later after their exodus from Egypt. And, you know, God, in essence, added on to that law of the Passover and said, by the way, this is in, uh, from, from the book of Numbers 28 and also Leviticus chapter 23 spells out the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was seven days. And the first day, that very first day of unleavened bread, of course, for seven days they would eat 
unleavened bread the whole time. But they started off the feast in what the Bible calls a high convocation or a high day. Again, I'm, I'm speaking from Numbers chapter 28, verse 16 through about 20 or 23. And also from Leviticus chapter 23 spells out that as well. And also the Lord specifically told Moses on that first day of unleavened bread shall be a day of high convocation and there shall no servile work be done therewith. In other words, in Jerusalem, the shops all closed on the first day of unleavened bread, right after the Passover. So on the morning, or on, in, in the morning, whenever Jesus died on the cross and he hung on the cross until about three o'clock in the afternoon, they said, we can't let him hang on the cross until the evening because that's a high day. That's an important day. We remember Moses said it's a high convocation, so we got to take him down off the cross, and we got to and we got to do our thing. Now, also on that same day on the feast of Tabernacle, sorry, on on the feast of unleavened bread on the first day. By the way, the Jews then and still do consider that a Sabbath day. The first and the seventh day of the feast of unleavened bread is a Sabbath day to Jews. This is beside the normal. Saturday, Sabbath day that they normally have. It's a very high day. Again, I'm speaking of Orthodox Jews, okay? But on that first day of unleavened bread, not only do they have a great feast that they prepared on the day of the Passover, but they also offered three types of sacrifices. And again, this is all spelled out in the book of Numbers. They took seven lambs, two young bullocks, and one ram. And they offered a burnt offering, a meat offering, and a sin offering. And so Jesus was crucified on the Passover. And 50 days later, God poured out his spirit at Shavuot. Whenever the Jews were gathered together in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the giving of the law. And the very first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, whenever they had made those sacrifices, and that high priest took the bowl of that sin offering and was going to pour it out in the mercy seat, he came to, to the very uh, steps of that place, and he saw that he could not offer it anymore because the veil had been torn from the top to the bottom. This signifying that the way into the most holy place was no longer just for a single time of the year, but for whosoever will. Those Jews were gathered together at Mount Sinai, and even now today, they will say, you know, they will say the Jews to the Orthodox Jewish mind, they will tell you, an Orthodox Jew will tell you this, they will say, we, we, we get together on Shavuot, which is what we call the day of Pentecost, every day, it's, their day is our day, but they celebrate it differently, they would say, you know, they go through ceremonies, they go through different types of things, they decorate their house with palm branches and flowers, they eat lots of milk products that symbolizes how, how milk and honey live 
theirs is a land of milk and honey, and they're in there and they're in the land of promise. But they will also tell you this: we get together and we read the Torah all night, and we prepare ourselves to receive the law. We are preparing ourselves to receive the law in the same manner that Moses and the Israelites prepared themselves to receive the law when God said, I want you to fast, I want you to pray three days, don't come near your wife, and don't anybody come near this mountain. I'm going to come down, I'm going to speak to you, and I'm going to give you the law. And the Bible says, you can read about this in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, that that site that day, uh, you know, again from the book of Hebrews 12, whenever Moses looked up at that site and God himself came down, it was black and it was thunder and it was lightning and it was the loud sound of a trumpet sounding. And they looked at that and even Moses said, I am exceedingly fearful and I quake because God put on his angry face and he said, this is my law and you got to walk in it. And that's what Shavuot is about. But on the day of Pentecost, the prophets of old that prophesied, there's going to come a day when I'm going to not put the word of God on some phylactery on your forehead or on your, on your hand or, all, or, or around about your neck, but I'm going to write it on the tables of your heart. And they were gathered together that day on the day of Pentecost on Shavuot to receive the law. And instead they received the baptism of the Holy Ghost on the same day. At Mount Sinai, you remember how many died that day when, when Moses descended from Mount Sinai and they were, they were dancing around that golden calf? You remember how, about how many died? About 3,000. You remember how many got the Holy Ghost in Acts 2? About 3,000. Coincidence? I think not. Because later on, Paul would call the law the ministry of death. For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth and life came by Jesus Christ. We looked at the law and said, there's no way I can do it in my own ability. But Zechariah said, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. I'm here to tell you about an experience that can fill you with God's power and authority. And the Jewish people believe, as they did then and as they do now, that Shaviot is the birthplace and the birth time of the nation of Israel. If you ask an Orthodox Jew, when did your nation begin? They will not take you back to Abraham who came out of Ur of the Chaldees. You know when they'll take you back to? The first Shaviot. On that Mount Sinai, when they received the law, and they became their own nation. Think about it. A nation has to have laws. So if they have no law, how can they be a nation? But their law, unlike our law, which is sometimes wrong, often wrong, their law is God's law, was God's law. And God took that law, the moral law, and he wrote it on the tables of our hearts Whenever we receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They call it the birthplace of their nation. We call it the birthplace of the church. It's the same day. Just as Jesus and John predicted and prophesied, the kingdom of God came with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They had cloven tongues like fire that was resting upon all of them. And as they, as they spoke supernaturally and under the influence of the Holy Ghost, they spoke in languages they had never before spoken ever. 
The same pillar that rested on the Israelites during the wilderness journey now rested upon the New Testament believers, cloven tongues like fire. As they journeyed through the wilderness, there was a pillar of fire that rested on their camp by night and a pillar of cloud by day. It was God himself hiding, or as, as it were, or manifesting himself in that pillar of fire, that flame of fire that hovered above the mercy seat that every eye could see. At nighttime, you could go out and you could look and you could see that pillar of fire resting on top of the camp of Israel. If you looked from afar, you could see that pillar of fire by night. So that was God putting a wall of fire run about them. By daytime, it was not a wall of fire. It was a wall of cloud. And so that was God's, you know, God letting them know, hey, I'm here. This is where I dwell. This is, this is where I live. There was, a, there was a tabernacle of Moses that was made of badger skins, but God came in Adam's skin. Amen. And, and, and then later, that spirit would fill the New Testament believers and manifest himself in the same way as he did to ancient Israel. Israel in the wilderness when he gave them cloven tongues like fire. It was symbolizing that he, God himself was living among them and dwelling among them and he was their God and they were his people. That's how the church came and that's how, this, that's how the church was born. The witness of the Spirit always came and still comes with the supernatural sign of speaking in tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. How did Peter know that the Gentiles had received the Holy Ghost? I'm so glad you asked. Acts chapter 10 and verse 45. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. These were Gentiles. These were not Jews. God was saying to Peter, who had the keys to the kingdom of God, that my gospel is not just to the Jews, by the way. It took them several years to realize that. But eventually they got it and thank God that's the case because if it wasn't, none of us would be here. We'd all be lost in our sins. There is no other evidence consistently mentioned in Scripture. Do you have the witness? Here's the thing about the Spirit. Spirit testifies of truth, and truth always supersedes tradition. This is an absolute fact of Scripture. From the book of Acts in chapter 9, this tells the story of, of Saul before he came Paul. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light. From heaven. And he fell to the ground, fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. The Lord asked him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul had been taught the law perfectly. In fact, he was a Pharisee. And by his traditions and in his mind, he was absolutely and 1,000% in the right. But let me tell you, as, as, as sincere as he was, traditions will always lead you astray. And your tradition is the biggest influence of God moving and working in your life. When he said, who are you, Lord? This question proves that Saul did not know God at all. Oh, he thought he knew God. But this question proves that he didn't. God appeared to Saul, and Saul was like, 
who are you? He, 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 he used uh, the, the, the Greek word kurios, or Lord, which is the Greek equivalent to the Old Testament word Jehovah. He was saying, who are you, Jehovah? I, what, what, what Saul was really saying was, I know I've been taught the law, but I'm realizing now that I don't know anything at all. I've been blind. And that's why scales appeared over his eyes until Ananias prayed for him that he might receive the Holy Ghost and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And when he got the Holy Ghost, the scales fell from his eyes. There's a lot of people that have religious traditions that in those traditions will keep you in darkness from truly knowing God in the fullness of his spirit. You do not know him until you know him in the power of the spirit of God in filling you. And that's when you know God. Lastly, certainly not least, the Holy Ghost testifies to us of the powers of the world to come. It gives us a little taste of heaven. From Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4 says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. What am I saying? That the taste of the powers of the world through come to come through the gift of the Holy Ghost is a little bit of what heaven is going to feel like. Whenever you get in the presence of God and you feel those tears flowing and you feel that cleansing coming into your spirit and your life and there's nothing in the world like being in the genuine presence of God. There's no high like it. There's nothing this world has that even comes close to it. There's no joy. There's no trophy. There is nothing. There's no accolades. There is nothing, nothing, nothing like being. I would trade a whole, a whole lifetime of accolades for being in the genuine presence of God for five short minutes. Nothing in the world like it. And I'm not talking about, you know, when the music is pumping and your adrenaline is flowing. I'm talking about the genuine presence of God like what we experienced in our services today. And as awesome as those power, as, as what we felt now, there is a heightened awareness that is coming when we get to heaven. When we get to heaven, there's going to be so much more. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said this, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. As musicians come, this is what Paul was talking about. He referred to the Holy Spirit as earnest money. Now, if you bought a house, you know what earnest money is. You know what a down payment is because you got to scrape and scrap and you got to save and sometimes rob Peter to pay Paul in, in order to get your down payment to buy that house. So, so, that's what God gave us when he gave us the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is He said, there's more to come, but take this for now. And, you know, we say there's greater and deeper depths. There's higher heights in the Lord. That's always true. There's more of God. You know, everybody wants, everybody wants revival, but nobody, everybody wants an old-fashioned revival, but nobody wants an old-fashioned consecration. And those, those deep revivals that, we, that we've read about, they were costly. They came at the price of men and women pushing aside the plate and calling on God, 
It was said that the man who was responsible for the Azusa Street Revival prayed in an egg crate for three years for Azusa Street Revival to happen. Finally, Azusa Street Revival was just a prayer meeting. I don't even think they had any preaching. People just came, and people were filled with the Holy Ghost, and it was, it was powerful all over the world. Even the L.A. Times wrote about it. That's the earnest of our inheritance. There's more to come. And if you've got earnest money, you know you've got the inheritance. If you don't have the earnest money, if you don't have that proof, the Lord is saying you need that evidence. You need that witness. Don't believe people that will say, just come and shake the preacher's hand and repeat a sinner's prayer. I will tell you they're robbing you of the greatest experience you will ever experience in your life. There is a witness that wants to come into your life that can be a powerful witness. I wouldn't give five cents for a religion that didn't pull me out of my sin and get me away from my drugs and my alcohol and all the things that that put me in bondage. But thank God there is a powerful experience with God that delivers and sets free, that sets the captive free. Praise God. Spirit testifies that we are the sons of God and testifies with our spirit that there's still more to come as we stand. Revelation 22 and 17, my last scripture. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that is that heareth, come. And let him that is a thirst, come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Remember when Jesus said that it will be like rivers flowing out and then later on in John, or uh, it was uh, John the Revelator saw in Revelation 21 or 22, he saw waters issuing out uh, from the throne of God. Those waters are still issuing out right now. There's waters, there's rivers that are still flowing. Ezekiel called it a river that flowed out of the temple toward the east country. The east country was, uh, was, uh, was the direction of sin. It flowed towards those eastern nations that were in deep spiritual bondage and darkness. And Ezekiel said, there's going to come a river one day and it's going to flow out not just to the east country but it's going to spread all the way over the whole world and you know what those winds started blowing on the day of Pentecost and they have been blowing for 2,000 years that river is still flowing today it can flow out of you it can flow out of me if you are hungry for it and if you are seeking God and you are thirsty for it anything is possible lift your hands today thank you Jesus for this Holy Spirit baptism, Lord. We bless your name, God. I thank you, Jesus. Come on, church, let your voice out for just a moment here today. Thank you, Jesus. We're giving you glory and honor today, Lord Jesus. I'm just gonna open up these altars. I want you all to come and just find a place.